0: Good
1: morning. If you don't know me, I'm Andy, and I am one of the elders at North Shore Church here. This morning, I have scripture for us and prayer. This morning's scripture is Matthew 18, 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? and calling to him a child we put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, in my name, there I am, one man. Our Father, thank you for your word this morning. Your word brings us comfort, it brings us joy, it relieves our fears, and it draws us closer to you. Through your word spoken, scripture being read, we get to know your heart. Lord, you gave us clear instructions. You showed us to be great in heaven. We are to be humble like children. You also told us that unless we turn and become like children, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us today. Knock us off our self-made thrones. Help us to be humble like children, looking to you for guidance, relying on your help, helping us to get through each day not striving or pressing to do our own will, as if we knew best, but seeking your will and following your lead as a child follows their parent. Father, we ask for your guidance in all of our church ministries. Help each of them to seek your will. We pray especially this morning for our teams working on the renovation plans. There are decisions being made and a lot of time and energy is invested. Bless those individuals with insight and humble spirits so that your will is done. And bless each of them with peace as they continue their work. Lord, I pray that all who are sick and in need of your healing touch, help them to come forward and seek prayer. Enable them to be made well again through your miraculous power as we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Lord, as a family of believers, we ask for your forgiveness of our sins. Please help us to never be the reason for anyone else's sin. Help us to only lead people to you. Let us share your love and your forgiveness with everyone that we know. We also pray now for the rest of our time here this morning. We pray for strength and conviction for Duncan, that he brings us your word as you will it. Give him clear thoughts and assurance that he is speaking those words that you want preached. And Lord, do a work in our hearts. Change us. Make us more into your image. Let your scriptures sink in and push out our own selfish desires. Through your word and through our worship of you this morning, as we listen and we sing, renew us in body and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: This morning, we hope to conclude our series of messages on Christian community and living as peacemakers in the Church of Christ, which is part of living in community. I trust, I hope, we've seen how important this topic is to our personal spiritual growth. Two main assumptions have lain underneath this series and the biblical text that we've been looking at. One is, as we saw in our series in Ephesians, is that a crucial part of our spiritual growth happens not on Sunday morning or even in our personal devotional times as important, indispensable as those times are. Based on our study of Ephesians, places like that, Ephesians chapter four in particular, one assumption has been that a very big piece of what God uses to make us into mature disciples is what happens in Christian community apart from simply Sunday worship. We saw that God has gifted the church with various people who equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the church would be built up. Verse 14, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So much of this building up happens between you and I, between the members of the body of Christ. At the very least, Paul means that we very much need each other to be like Jesus. Christ works through the properly working parts of his body, Paul says, to make us grow so that we can build ourselves up together in love. Again, at the very least, that means that I can't get the spiritual maturity apart from your work in my life. Paul is saying that Christ builds up the body as each member of the body does its part. It's in community. Proverbs 27 says, As iron sharpens iron that this maturity happens. Another big assumption underlying the truth of Scripture that's really about how absolutely basic God's nature is to our process of spiritual growth. The most basic, essential reason the church the redeemed people of God must model vital community is because it's essential to the way God created us as human beings, in our essence. We're created in the image of God, but we must always remember that God's essential nature, part of His image, is Trinitarian. Okay, now for way too many believers, The fact that God is Trinitarian in nature, eternally existing as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from way too many believers, that truth is just kind of a theological curiosity taught in Scripture. But we must remember that for most of God's eternal existence, in eternity past, at least as far as we know from the Scripture, God existed in Trinitarian form without anybody else around And yet God was never lonely, because God has always existed in community within himself, in his three divine persons. For nearly all of eternity past, God was perfectly contented within the Trinity, each divine person delighting in the other divine persons, each divine person glorifying the other divine persons within the Godhead. And we're created in the image of this community delighting God. So how is the church in whom the image of God is being restored to reflect being created in the image of God who is perpetually in community? One answer to that question is that God designed us to thrive spiritually when we have vital relationships with one another in dynamic Christian community. And part of being a part of expressing faithfully God's communal image is delighting in and drawing strength and encouraging from Christ-centered community. As we've seen in our series, a big part of this is speaking the truth in love to one another. As peacemakers, as we display that we are sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are sons of God. That means that part of the obligation of church leadership is to work to equip the body to express this Christ-centered community. Not only because there are explicit texts in Ephesians chapter 4 that tell how important that is, but also because Jesus saved us in part so that we might be increasingly conformed to his image. And a big part of his image is reflected in the fact that we live in vital community with one another as he is in community with the Father and with the Spirit. So you see, our responsibility to express community in our church by practicing things like biblical peacemaking, among other things, it's not on the fringes of what it is to honor Christ. It's not on the fringes of what it is to walk with God. It's no accident that in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, where Luke writes this summary description of what daily church life was like in the early church He says in verse 44, And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread, and it should be together in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The Church of Pentecost, in perhaps its purest form in church history, spent a lot of time together. They were with each other a lot. And the Apostle John over and over stresses how important our relationships are with one another as followers of Christ. Just to pick one that we don't think of very often, I chose 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident that we are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John here lists only two major lines of evidence that display whether you're a child of God or a child of the devil. One is personal holiness, and the other is whether or not you love other believers. This emphasis on what it is to live in this interdependent, God-reflecting community has been our focus. And last week, we saw what this looks like when someone sins against us and hurts us. So we spent time in Matthew 18, in the teaching that Jesus gives directly after the one that Andy just read, we saw Jesus' stratospherically high expectations for his church in this area. We saw that Jesus expects his church to forgive those who sin against us as many times as necessary and without respect to the destructiveness of a given sin committed against us. And as we read Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, we saw just how believers are to execute this kind of radical, limitless forgiveness. This week we want to conclude this series with a very different but also a very important scenario in view, and that is, what happens, what happens When we do the right thing, and we lovingly confront someone about their sin, but they don't listen to us, they are unrepentant. Let's dig into what Jesus says. We're going to be focusing on the portion of Scripture that Andy read from verses 15 and following. And so let's begin as Jesus says in verse 15, "...if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother." Now this text is the classic, most people would say, New Testament treatment on what's been called church discipline. Okay, it's important for us to remember that church discipline is not limited to this process that Jesus spells out here. When a preacher gives a message that convicts you of sin, that's a form of church discipline. When a brother or sister brings a word of gentle correction to you and you respond, that's church discipline too. What Jesus is spelling out here for us is what is often called corporate church discipline. When the offending person does not repent of his or her sin when corrected and additional people need to be brought into that situation. As we look at verse 15, right off the bat, we are met with a question about what Jesus actually said. And the reason we're met with that question is because the ESV, which is what you heard, renders this verse, if your brother sins against you. But other translations, like the King James Version, share that. But the NIV and the NASV omit the words against you. Because in the ancient manuscripts, some of them have against you and some of them don't. And so how do you make those kind of decisions? That's called a textual variant. So how do you make the decisions? What is the Word of God? Because we want the Word of God. And if against you is right, then Jesus is talking about a scenario where this kind of correction is limited only to those situations where someone sins against you. Now I'm not sure why the ESV, which is an excellent translation went with this translation because there's no note to cite their reasons or even the fact that there's more than one option here. The truth is that two of the most respected Greek testaments, I mean, when you open it, you see the Greek language, both of them indicate that there is considerable doubt about those words against you. Two of the four main Greek texts from which most of the New Testament is derived don't include them. This kind of textual variant is very rare doesn't happen very often and it shouldn't undermine our confidence that we have in our translations that this is the word of God in this case other New Testament texts on church discipline that clearly speak to this issue clearly in view is all sins not just sins against you so ultimately this becomes something of a non-issue but careful readers are going to read this and say It says against you. And someone may say to you, if you say, you know, I see what you're doing and this is really not honoring God. Hey, you know what? It's not against you. Matthew 18 says against you. So this does become an issue on a practical level. The better reading is if your brother sins. And that's echoed in other parts of the Bible, I think. Again, that broader understanding of what Jesus is saying about the sin envisions here a more traditional understanding. Okay, that is, that Jesus is not limiting corporate discipline that he outlines here only to those situations where a person happens to sin against you. So if you witness someone in the church committing a sin or someone in the body tells you of their unrepentant sins, those situations would fit what Jesus has in mind here just as much as if a brother or sister came up and did something to you personally. As we've seen in other texts where correcting someone in sin is the issue... Jesus wants to make sure, like the other biblical authors do, that this is done in private. In fact, it's important for us to see that a big part of this procedure that Jesus spells out here is done with a view to protect the accused person from unnecessary exposure. Okay? These things are not to be shared with those who are not directly involved. Initially, this is to be done in confidence just as we would want it to be done if someone saw something in us. The first step in this procedure, obviously, is to go to the person alone, privately, and confront him with his or her sin. In light of what else we've seen in our series, this meeting might include, when necessary, confirming the interpretation of the alleged sin. You know, I heard you slander Brother Jones by saying thus and so. Did I hear that correctly? Okay? Okay. That can be very important here too. If the person humbles himself by your words and listens is the word that Jesus used. That is, he admits their are wrong. Uh, they agree to stop the behavior or apologize to the person they've wronged. Jesus says, you have gained your brother. I love that. This word translated, gained, literally just means you've won him or her over to repentance. Their fellowship with Christ has been restored Jesus continues in verse 16 he says but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses the challenge in applying this procedure in church and I've applied it a few times and it is a challenge sometimes is to understand what specifically means right here and the main question is Who are these two or three witnesses? Are these people who have literally witnessed the sinful behavior themselves? Is that what he's talking about? Or are these two people who may not have had any witness firsthand of the experience, but they're called into this process to support the one who's raising the accusation? Which is it? Again, it's an important question, and scholars are on both sides of this issue. They can't agree with what's going on here in most cases however it ends up being irrelevant let's say that one or two additional people are brought into the process that were not witnesses of the sin initially they can still go with the person making the accusation and ask the accused person you know this is this is what you met with earlier when this person talked to you privately and this is what's been reported to us here's the evidence that was brought to us about this matter Do you agree with this understanding? Almost all of the time, in my experience, and the experience of most people in the church that have done this a lot, that sin is easily confirmed. And then these witnesses are absolutely, unquestionably qualified to serve as witnesses because they have the confirming testimony of the person who committed the sin. The second step in the discipline process is not something that Jesus comes up with on the spot, pulls out of thin air. He grounds it in Old Testament law when he says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's citing Deuteronomy 19 here. Deuteronomy 19:15 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Rabbi Jesus here is citing Old Testament law as authoritative in establishing The guilt of the accused. The reason for this stipulation in Mosaic law is pretty obvious, I think. It's to prevent someone from deceitfully bringing a charge against someone out of spite, perhaps, and thereby unjustly bringing the force of the law down upon that person. If there are not two or three witnesses, the charge was not considered legally valid or actionable. Again, we see that a big part of Jesus' burden here is to protect the accused from injustice and unfair treatment. And that echoes his earlier concern about the dignity of the person, making sure that this is done in private. Even though many have sadly seen this process and been repulsed by it, when you read it carefully, this is drenched with mercy. Ultimately because a person in unrepentant sin is headed for big trouble And you want to love that person enough to stop them from that. Jesus continues in verse 17, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So, if the accused person does not receive the correction and repent in response to the original accuser or the witnesses, the next and final step is to bring it before the church. The fact that this matter is to be brought before the church carries with it some really weighty and important implications about the nature of sin and the nature of the church. First, it tells us that Jesus here, before his death and resurrection, he's looking out and he's envisioning the existence of various local churches long before there's even one church. But this also means that Jesus is envisioning the church as being an easily identifiable easily definable group. You may think, well, duh. Well, that ends up being really important. What I mean by that is Jesus is assuming that there must be an identifiable, definable group of people who are called the church to bring this person before, or at least if they're not there, to bring their name before. Think about it for a minute. One implication of this is that the New Testament knows nothing about the practice of many churches across denominations who claim, for instance, to have 500 members on their membership roll, but somewhere between 165 and 175 attending church on Sunday. Okay, that's very common across many ecclesiastical traditions. It's absolutely ridiculous when you consider what Jesus here when he says, tell it to the church. (laughs) What's the church? (laughs) Is the church that list of members who claim some sort of loose affiliation with a particular local church, perhaps attending on Christmas and Easter? Jesus knows nothing about this kind of incredibly loose and, frankly, meaningless understanding of the church. Clearly in his mind, the church is a readily identifiable group of believers who regularly come together as the assembled family of God in a particular location to carry out the purposes of the church spelled out in the New Testament. This entire disciplinary process that he spells out here is meaningless if that's not the church. How do you bring an accused person before any other kind of group? If the church is a list of names, half of which no longer attend the given church in which this person exists, then Jesus is uttering nonsense here. A person who perhaps only watches the service online or sends an occasional check into the church, but is not easily identifiable as a functioning part of the local church, that person is not a part of the church as Jesus envisions it. There are, of course, exceptions for shut-ins and other people for whom regular attendance is impossible. We're not talking about that. This need for a crystal clear understanding of who the church is is one reason why we here at North Shore and many other churches strongly stress entering into formal membership and maintaining the integrity of the membership roles. This is because in contemporary Western culture, church membership is the way that we maintain the biblical standard that Jesus models here of what it is to be the church. If you're a regular attender, but you've not formally committed to membership even though you've determined that this is where God has you, then you need to become a member so that you can fulfill Jesus' vision for the church. A related question here in verse 17 is, why? Why does Jesus call for this person to to be brought before the assembled church. I mean, couldn't this discipline be done by the elders in a much more private setting? In fact, some traditions choose to understand this that way, and the elders serve as a representative of the church. Not good, because it says, tell it to the church. So why is... This is the case, especially when we've already seen the priority that Jesus places on guarding a person's privacy. There are multiple answers to this question. One reason is because Jesus has a much higher view of the entire assembled church than many Christians do. A much higher view of the church. In many local churches, people think that the pastor-elders of the church are to do what are thought as the priestly tasks of the church. You guys handle the priestly tasks, which would include excommunication, which is what we're talking about here. But in First Peter 2:9, Peter calls the entire church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a very high view of the church. And as Protestants, we celebrate the priesthood of all believers. The entire church is a priesthood because the scripture clearly teaches that all redeemed sinners have equal access to God through Jesus Christ. And if one of the members of the church is in unrepentant sin, it is a priestly Function for the priesthood of all believers, the entire church body, not just the pastor elders, to bring discipline on the unrepentant. Another reason the entire church is involved in what we call excommunication is because unrepentant sin impacts the entire church. It doesn't just impact those few people around it. It impacts the entire church. If it impacts the entire church, then it would make sense for the entire church to be involved in the excommunication. The impact is seen in a couple of ways. First, if a local body of believers has a member of the church who is widely known in the community as being an unethical crook, the reputation of that entire local church is colored by the fact that this crooked person is associated with it. So if someone's sin has colored the reputation of your church, you in some way could have had your reputation colored because you're part of that church. If for no other reason you go to a church that doesn't take Jesus Christ seriously. So because it's against the the reputation of the church, potentially your own reputation, you should be part of the discipline. But that's only a superficial reason. The biggest reason is much deeper than simply the reputation of the local church before a watching world. The Scripture teaches that one unrepentant and undisciplined that is not disciplined person in the local church has a spiritually toxic impact on the health of the entire local church. Many people think about the church as a religious organization because it's organized. But the Bible repeatedly sees each local church as a living organism that is either healthy or is in some state of ill hell. In 1 Corinthians, Paul implies this is another famous context of church discipline, and he writes of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about a man who was guilty of scandalous sexual sin, and the church in their open-mindedness had arrogantly chosen to allow him to remain because they're very open-minded about these things, and so he comes down on them. And Paul writes to this Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You hear what he's saying? This is remarkable. He's saying, this guy is leaven in your church. And your church is the loaf. And he's leavening your loaf. Consistent with the rest of Scripture, Paul uh, compares sin to leaven. And what he's asserting here is that unrepentant sin, it's not disciplined in the body, it's not checked, is like leaven in a loaf of bread. Now, he's not talking about yeast here. This is the kind of leavening you do with sourdough bread. Some of you who've made sourdough bread know this, where a piece of dough from leavened bread is combined with unleavened dough, and then that leavening works through the whole loaf. That's the way it works. That's what Paul says. That's the impact of unrepentant, unrepent, unchecked sin in a body. The same way, one element that helps determine the health of a church is whether or not unrepentant sinners are purged, that's Paul's word, from the body. Unrepentant, undisciplined sin is virulent. It is viral to a local body of believers. It can spread and it can sicken the body. I saw this absolutely firsthand when I was in seminary. The church that I attended in seminary had a couple of their leading people in the church, a man and a woman that were involved with one another, in ways that were adulterous. And everybody knew about it, and they chose not to say anything about it, even though they were explicitly warned about the leavening impact of sin in the body. They said, thanks, no thanks. Within a couple of the years, two of their pastoral staff were fired for sexually inappropriate conduct. And it took years for that church to recover. Paul would say those incidents are not a coincidence. It was the result of a church that was unfaithful in purging unrepentant sinners from their midst. Because sin impacts the health of the entire body, it is appropriate for the entire assembled church to be part of excommunication. When this occurs, that has the impact of the entire church renouncing this sin, separating itself from this sin, as well as the person who's committing it. Once the person has been confronted privately, one-on-one, and then with sufficient witnesses to establish guilt, it goes before the church because as fellow priests and as those who could be impacted by the sin, if it's not purged from the church, it is appropriate for all of the assembled church to do the excommunication. There are other reasons but that gives you enough to think about. Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. Again, this has been misunderstood at times too in the church. This has been misunderstood by some to think that Jesus is calling for the church to shun the sinner for the purpose of shaming him or her. Well, hopefully the person will feel shame because shame is appropriate for someone who has been exposed as an unrepentant sinner. But the point here is to regard them as a Gentile or tax collector. Does the church shun people outside the church? Does, would a church today shun a tax collector or a, a prostitute? Of course not. We try to win with Jesus. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Regard them as an unbeliever. By failing to repent of the sin after multiple warnings, this person has shown him or herself to be hardened of heart and not a believer. That's what he's saying. This person has not lost their salvation. He or she never was a believer. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us so that we would know that they were not of us. Okay? This church has simply exposed the fact that they are not in Christ by not rightly responding to discipline. Jesus concludes the teaching in verse 18 where he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, or there am I among them. We don't have time to go into all of this stuff about binding and loosing. It has a very rich Old Testament understanding behind all of that. Uh, But what I wanted to do is just give you the gist. A local church who excommunicates someone is essentially declaring the spiritual status of an unrepentant sinner as someone is being outside the church. That's what they're doing. And this is why you have to be very sober about this. Very serious. They're not part of the body of Christ. Jesus is teaching here that a local church who faithfully goes through this process, declares this through their discipline, that declaration of that person's spiritual status is not one they hold alone. That is not their declaration alone. Jesus' promise is that God in heaven, and he uses heaven and earth a lot here, stands in agreement with the judgment by the church on earth. If the church binds, that's the word he uses, an unrepentant sinner outwardly through excommunication, he's saying God will also bind that person spiritually so that unless he or she repents, they will remain outside the spiritual protection of the church. And Paul goes into that more in 1 Corinthians 5. Likewise, if the church looses a once bound sinner who repents and brings that person back into fellowship, God will likewise act toward that repentant person. This is similar to what Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection in John chapter 20. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Very similar. He's giving the church enormous authority here. I hope we hear the enormous authority that Christ gives his church. You have more authority if you're a member of a church than the President of the United States has because he doesn't say anything about a person's eternal place. Those in the church have that power, have that authority, because God has granted them that authority. Jesus is saying that when the church agrees in these matters of discipline, they are acting with the Father's spiritual authority. And although Jesus is always present with his people, we know that, he makes a special point of giving an additional assurance of his presence in this context of church discipline when he says in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This additional assurance by Jesus of his presence with the church should tell us how important church discipline is to him and to the health of the church. The Protestant reformers said the Bible reveals that there are three essential elements that must be present for a group of believers to be a genuine, biblically defined church. Three essential elements for a group of believers to be a biblically defined church. The first is the preaching of the Word. That makes sense. The second is the sacraments, or what we would call ordinances. In our case, baptism and Lord's Supper. But the third is the practice of church discipline very few people in this room would have filled that one in as the third mark of a church. As a must-have qualification for being a church. But the reformers, when you think about it, are absolutely right. If a church refuses to practice church discipline, that group is not a church. If a so-called church is not serious enough about sin and the purity of the church to excommunicate those who are brazenly unrepentant That group may be a religious club. It's not a church. And the reason is because Jesus gave his life. He shed his blood. There's the gospel to establish a church that is comprised of a group of people who have been chosen, according to Ephesians 1-4, to be holy and blameless before him. If the church is a group of people, and we saw this in Ephesians, chosen by God for the purpose of being holy and blameless before him, and if there is no church discipline in place to ensure that the church remains what it is chosen to be, holy and blameless, then it's not a church. It's playing games. Maybe doing a lot of stuff. But it's not a church. At North Shore, we're committed to lovingly, biblically practicing all forms of church discipline, including this corporate discipline, because we love God and because we love one another. Just as parents who refuse to discipline their children do not love them, churches that refuse to do discipline because they're so open-minded and they're so tolerant, those people don't love their people. May God give us the grace to live faithfully in all aspects of vital Christian community for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. I, I thank you for the reminder this has been this week of your incredibly stratospherically high view of the church. God, it is so easy, especially when we see things in the church we don't like. God, for us, our view of the church to get lower and lower. God, thank you that your view is high. And Jesus, you died for the church, which should give us the highest possible understanding of how precious it is. God, we thank you for this reminder of the authority of the church. And God, we thank you again for the reminder of the severity, seriousness, Of sin God we pray that you'd help all of us to take this to heart that your word would do that scalpel like work in showing us our own sin those areas where we have been unrepentant maybe not even knowing it and father I pray that you would help not just the leadership but all of us to be faithful to first of all police our own self, to make sure that we got the log out of our own eye so that then we'll be free to take us back the eye others, so that Jesus can be honored through His increasingly holy and blameless people, His church, for Jesus' sake.